Hi, I'm Batsheva Frankel from Overthrowing Education, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Barbara R. Blackburn about her amazing book, Money for Good Grades and Other Myths About Motivating Kids, Strategies for Parents and Teachers. Every parent, teacher, and principal should read this book. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. Now here's Steve with this week's show. Ranked in the top 30 global gurus in education, Barbara has dedicated her life to raising the level of rigor and motivation for professional educators and students alike. What differentiates Barbara's 28 books are her easily executable concrete examples based on decades of experience as a teacher, professor, and consultant. Barbara's dedication to education was inspired in her early years by her parents, Bob and Rose. Her father's doctorate and lifetime career as a professor taught her the importance of professional training. Her mother's career as school secretary shaped Barbara's appreciation of the effort all staff play in the education of every child. Barbara has taught early childhood, elementary, middle, and high school students and has served as an educational consultant for three publishing companies. She holds a master's degree in school administration and was certified as both a teacher and a school principal in North Carolina. She received her PhD in curriculum and teaching from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. In 2006, she received the award for outstanding junior professor at Winthrop University. She recently left her position at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte to write and speak full time. In addition to speaking at state, national, and international conferences, she also regularly presents workshops for teachers and administrators in elementary, middle, and high schools. Her workshops are lively and engaging and filled with practical information. Her most popular topics include rigor is not a a four-letter word, which I love that title. I will say that over and over again. The uh, rigorous schools and classrooms leading the way, rigorous assessments, rigor and differentiation in the classroom, rigor for students with special needs, motivation plus engagement plus rigor equals student success, research-based engaging instruction leads to higher achievement, high expectations and increased support lead to success. And today we're going to talk about money for good grades and other myths about motivating kids, strategies for parents and teachers. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me. Glad you're here again. Say hi to everyone. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. And Steve, I just have to say how much I enjoy working with you. I I don't know how many of these we've done, but they are one of my favorite things because we always have such good conversations. So I appreciate everybody joining in with us today. Thank you so much, Barbara. This is, this is going to be a great talk. And I, I love having our talks and I'm always amazed because I mean, the, the books are consistently that you create are consistently so useful, so helpful, and so easy to use. And it's such a cool thing. And, and everybody listening, nobody paid me to say that. I mean, this is, I love these books. I was talking to a colleague last night about getting ready to have this conversation with you, Barbara, and I was saying the same thing. And uh, it's just uh, um, great tools for, uh, um, for educators to uh, get to use. Thank you. So, uh, Barbara, glad you're here again. And, uh, you know, I love the title and topic of your book that we'll discuss today, Money for Good Grades and Other Myths About Motivating Kids, Strategies for Parents and Teachers. You start off the introduction with this statement. Sometimes it seems as though our kids are not motivated to do anything we want them to do. Could you use this as a lead in to what this book is all about? Well, I think one of the things that I have found, I found this as a teacher, but I also found this both with my stepson and uh, my husband and I had a foster son for a while who was uh, a teenager. And I found that anything I wanted them to do, anything I wanted them to be interested in, they were interested in in the opposite. You know, it didn't matter what I wanted, they wanted something different. And as I began to look around, I began to see this, you know, when I talked to teachers, you know, they were like, I just want my kids to be focused on this. And of course, they wanted to be focused on something else. But as I talked to relatives who had kids, neighbors, friends, I really began to see how much of an issue this was. And um, I originally began this project to write a book for parents. 
because I was getting so many teachers who were parents who would say, write a book for us, <laughs> write a book for parents. And I really started it that way. So throughout the book, there are lots of examples for parents, but I didn't want to lose my heart, which is, <laughs> which is teachers. Um, and so I, I looked for a way to blend the two. And so you'll see lots of parent examples. You'll also see some school examples. Uh, so no matter who you are, I think you'll find it real practical. But it, it really did begin out of my frustration as a foster parent and as a step parent that linked back to my frustration as a teacher. It, it's, it, it's such an incredible, um, not just the title, the content that you've created. It's, it's for, you can see, it's for parents but it's also for teachers and you get that feeling and it's, and it's neat that how it started because um, it, it's something that I think parents, teachers, principals, they all need to read because they get this, this thought about these myths and uh, you know, you hear them from parents all the time. You hear them from educators all the time and uh, they, and unfortunately they're not realizing the mythology behind uh, this stuff. So, so with that being said, we have to start here. Could you take a minute to talk about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation? Yeah, um, and, and if you're a teacher, you're probably real familiar with that term. If you're a parent, you may be familiar with those terms. Uh, you may be more familiar with external and internal, um, but I think that that's foundational to everything else. And the real difference is that extrinsic is anything external. Uh, it is rewards, tokens, money, um, going out for dinner, going on a trip. Uh, extrinsic is any of those things. Intrinsic is the internal motivation, the motivation that comes from within ourselves. And so what we find when we look at the research behind it is that even though we use extrinsic far more often, um, it is not as effective. Uh, Daniel Pink, in his book, Drive, uh, likens it to caffeine, that it gives you a shot to get started, but then it wears off. And I think that's a really good <laughs> way to think about it. Extrinsic will motivate someone immediately. You know, if, if I'm in a school and I want my students to behave, if I start giving out stickers, that's going to work immediately. If I'm a parent and I uh, want my kids to do their homework for four days, if I promise to take them somewhere on the weekend, that's, that's likely going to work if it's somewhere they wanna go. The problem is twofold. One, it doesn't last. And two, uh, the kids want the stakes to get higher and higher. So I was talking to a teacher who was actually struggling with this issue, um, but it was an issue uh, related to what the parents were doing with extrinsic motivation. And, uh, the kid who was, by the way, in second grade, uh, was a terrible, terrible behavior problem. And so the parents had put him on a sticker chart where uh, every time like he behaved for 10 minutes, he got a sticker. Or every time he did something he was asked, he got a sticker. Well, that needed to happen at school. So the teacher agreed. But what began to happen was uh, that the kid wanted a sticker at school for everything. So if the teacher said line up for lunch, he wanted a sticker for it or he wouldn't do it. Uh, if it was line up for the bathroom, he wanted a sticker for it. And so she met with the parents and it was working enough that they didn't want to give up on it, but they were also seeing that increase. And what was happening was by the time the teacher really got involved with it, this kid who was being paid based on the stickers, and remember second grade, was earning up to $100 to $150 a week. And blew me away when I heard that story from the teacher. I can imagine. She, oh, my gosh. Yeah, she said the parents didn't like it either, but they couldn't figure out how to get out of it once they started. <laughs> so that's the problem with extrinsic. Now, the positive side of extrinsic, because, you know, although there's some people who say there is none, the research is pretty clear in terms of two ways. If you want to use it for rote task, doing chores, doing multiplication tables, then it is more effective. Um, the second thing is if you are going to use it, you need to tie the reward to the task. 
So the school where I did my student teaching, uh, if students read a certain number of books, they got to go to the book room and get a free book. So that is more effective than uh, if you read a certain number of books, you get a free personal pan pizza at a local pizza place. So, you know, generally extrinsic works, but not for long. Um, but if you are going to do it, pay attention to those two tips. Now, intrinsic is long lasting. It is lifelong motivation. It is that motivation that comes from inside that says, I want to do this. I am going to do my best. Uh, and we can't make that happen because it's intrinsic. What we can do is create an environment in which it is more likely to happen. So um, let me give you an example from my, my own uh, growing up years. Um, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but the notion of competition. Um, and, and one of the things that's important with competition is that, that kids need to learn to compete with themselves rather than other people. And, and that, you know, people go, well, that's heresy. They need to compete with other people. But really, long lasting, you need to compete with yourselves. Well, here's how my dad taught me to compete with myself. Uh, he did a couple of things that I remember growing up. One was anything I did, whether it was a grade or when I was working in high school, anything, he would say, so did you do the best you could do? Uh, do you think you did better than you did last time? He never asked me, was this the best grade in the class? Um, he never said, well, did you do better than so-and-so? And we don't do those things on purpose. You know, they just sort of sneak in. Uh, but he was always asking me if I did my best. And then the other thing I remember, and this one is just hilarious, is that he and I, uh, starting in high school, we played racquetball. Uh, he taught at a college. He was the chair of the health and physical education department. So the racquetball courts were in, in his building. So we would play racquetball. And we would play, and he would never just let me win. That was, that was not like when we were playing the main game, right. he played hard. And – you know, I could keep it close, so he probably did fudge a little bit, but, but I, I did not win a lot. And what would happen was after we would play, however many games we played, he would go, okay, so now what we're going to do is the championship of the world. And it was a three-pointer. <laughs> and he would say, think about what you did and think about what you want to get better. And I do know he fudged here. Always won championship of the world. And it was always about being better than you had been. Gotcha. And, you know, those things taught me um, not only to compete with myself, but to be intrinsically motivated because I was measuring myself against myself, not other people. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. It, uh, <laughs> matter of fact, and I can experience it through racquetball as well. It's uh, <laughs> father who loved that and was very good at making that ball roll out, at, uh, hit that bottom of the wall and just, and you're like, can't do anything with that one. Yeah, thank you very much. So... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, vivid memories of that. <laughs> nice. Well, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to, to take us through that, because I think that's, it's important to understand um, as we get further into this information. The, uh, um, so your, bro your book is broken into sharing eight myths. As with all of your books, you have an amazing writing style that makes it easy to read the book and easy to understand, which is what I said at the beginning. That's, I just, I love that. Okay. That's, you know, I'm not sitting here going, what'd you say? You have to go back a few pages and come back forward. And oh, I forgot it again. Let me back up because there's some books that just, just happens in and it, not yours. Um, one of the aspects that I love in this book is that at the end of each chapter, you have a section called classroom connection. Could you share a little bit about these segments? Uh, I can. And what I'm going to do before I do that is I'm, I'm going to tell you one of my secrets. Uh, when you talk about that, they're always uh, very easy to understand. Nice. Um, I do something with every book I do. I do something that's called the flip test. And I always check it before we do the final publication. But when the book actually comes in and I open it, my husband laughs because this is the first thing I'll do. I'll pick up a book. I don't read it. I don't look at the cover. I sit there and I just flip the pages all the way through the book. And my goal is that every page has a chart, summary points, a diagram. There's no page that is solid text because that makes something hard to read. And so I usually hit it about 95% of the time. And so that's my secret 
on other than my writing, but that's my secret on making sure that things can be understood very easily. That's awesome. And one of the features is this classroom connection. And in this case, we finish each chapter uh, with it. And I break it down into two sections and the questions are geared toward parents. But if you're a teacher, you can flip them around very easily. So for example, the first question is, is there something I might ask my kid's teacher about? And it gives some samples so that if you're not sure, you've got some ideas. And then are there any ideas I might share with my kid's teacher? So it's, I want to ask you questions. Now I want to share something. And, and actually that format came from my work with teachers because uh, it's very much a challenge for many teachers to try to uh, the whole parent communication piece. It just seems to be hard sometimes. And what I always say to them is start by asking a question. Don't start by saying, here's, here's what your child is doing in my class, or here's what your son or daughter is doing in my class, or here's something I need your help with. Because it, it, you have to think about it being like a bank. You need to deposit before you withdraw. And depositing is asking questions and withdrawing is telling them things. And so I follow the same format with parents because I think as parents, if we go in and say, here's what I want you to do, or, you know, here's what I think ought to happen, you know, it's very easy to turn people off. So the classroom connection is set up with a question and then uh, still a question, but asking if there's something you can share. That's awesome. And just as a side note, boy, I wish I'd had that advice when I was a new teacher. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a couple of parent conferences that would have gone a lot better if I'd started off with a question. <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> Can't go back in time. So, um, it, so let's jump into myth one. All right. Mo motivating with rewards is the best option. You start with this sentence. One of the most common ways to motivate kids is to use rewards. Where are you going with this one? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about with extrinsic motivation. Uh, we do it because it seems to work and it does work. It just doesn't necessarily work over time. Um, and, and there, there are so many times that I used rewards and they seemed to work and then they didn't. Uh, so I'm going to share a school example and then I'll share a parent example. Um, when I was teaching, uh, there were several years that I taught at risk students. Uh, students who were placed based on their low test scores. Uh, they were reading three or four grade levels below where they were. And they were very unmotivated because they had all this baggage. They felt like they had been treated as second class citizens in some cases. Probably that had happened, so it wasn't just their feelings, but they were not motivated. So I used rewards and I couldn't believe how well it worked. I mean, these are seventh and eighth graders who love me drawing a smiley face on their paper. And boy, it was a big deal when I brought stickers in. Um, but again, what I found was that they started expecting it all the time. So if I didn't have stickers, then they were like, why do I need to bother? Well, that wasn't what I wanted to encourage at all. And so rewards can get out of hand very, very quickly. So what I had to do was, was taper them off. And I always used stickers or smiley faces. I just learned to use them randomly so the kids didn't come to expect them uh, and to not use them very often. And so I, I had to learn a tough lesson with that. Now, the other hard lesson that I had was with our foster son. Um, and just to give a little context, uh, at the time, my stepson was 13. Um, his dad and I had been married two years, so I was still trying to figure out what to do <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't have my own kids. Um, and a really good friend of his that he had gone to school with in an, a private school setting um, was uh, 16 and had become homeless and had been homeless for nine months. His dad had kicked him out of the house. And so... Uh, one of the first things we did with our foster son was get him into school because he had not been in school. And that in itself was a challenge because of being out. So we ended up in an alternative school and he was very turned off by school. 
And so one of the classes he had to take, I'll never forget because he hated this class, was an automotive class they had put him in and he didn't want to be in there and they had given him vocabulary. So I brought him upstairs to my office. I uh, created a game. We played the game. He had to know his vocabulary words and he did great. And then we went back downstairs and he showed off how he knew all of those words. And I gave him a $10 iTunes gift card for doing so well. And, you know, the whole he began to expect it all the time, but um, he didn't want to study unless I gave him something. But, but the other unintended consequence was that my stepson became very upset because he was like, well, you know, I make good grades all the time and you don't give me anything. And he manages to learn some vocabulary and Barb gives him a gift card. And it, we had to do some hard uh, backpedaling on that because he was very upset about it with his dad. He was very upset with me. And as a new stepmom of two years, I, I really had to do some work. Um, and so again, I think extrinsic sometimes just the rewards can cause you problems you weren't expecting. And I, I do understand why we use them because I have, been there. You know, nothing is going right. And the only way you can get the kid, no matter what age, to calm down is a reward. Yes, you can go drive and see your friends. Yes, I'll let your curfew be later. Yes, I'll take you to get ice cream. But all of those are short-term solutions and they really do cause damage in the long term. Gotcha. That's, uh, and that's something that it's always kind of popped up, whether it's stickers or whether it's money or whether it's, you know, um, giving people ice cream to, to get better. You know, there's just any number of ways that it appears. And it's, it's, it, it's uh, I'm sorry that you had to <laughs> figure that out in your family. Cause you, you see that in family a lot where the other child goes, excuse me, hello, I'm here. So maybe I should just shut down. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. And then I'll reward you if you start getting better. Okay. So. Uh, yeah. And I think one of the other challenges with rewards is everybody likes them. Right. I mean, we like rewards. We like frequent flyer miles. We like points on our credit card. Um, you know, we like getting a $5 gift card from somebody for something. I mean, I just got asked to do uh, a survey on something and they said, you know, thank you for doing one. If you'll do three more, we'll give you a $5 gift card each time. <laughs> nice. I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Rewards. Here we go. Um, <laughs> and, and I didn't do it for that. I did it because I wanted to answer the questions. Um, so even as adults, you know, we like those things. I mean, almost every one of us uh, uses rewards because, um, you know, we've all got the little tags on our uh, keys that say, uh, you know, we get a discount at the store. <laughs> yes. And so that's a reward. So we all like it. So, you know, myth number two, what your child cares about doesn't matter. So why is the opposite true? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that one again, I would love to tell you, I just made all these things up, but I swear <laughs> all of these came out of mistakes I've made. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, and I'd go back to, to two different examples. One was that when I was teacher, I was so focused on, I've got to teach my standards. We've got to do the standardized test. You know, they've got to do so much to, to, you know, pay attention to the test that I think I sort of lost as an overriding uh, focus, the notion of interest and that, which is really value. Okay. So students value things they are interested in. They value activities that they like. Uh, they value their relationship with you. So the same is true for your own kids. And, you know, we try to do that, but what I was doing is classic mistake as a new teacher was I would just tack on an extra question uh, at the end of the test uh, with a real life connection, okay, to try to get to what they cared about. Well, that's not exactly what it's about. So uh, again, I'm gonna go back to the at-risk kids I was teaching at the, uh, at that time it was a junior high school. They were very agitated anytime uh, we pulled out the English books. And I, it really 
I could tell it was more than just normal being upset. And I finally got them to tell me what was wrong. And what was wrong was that the books were green. And I was just sort of like, okay, I don't really know what's going on here. And I had to dig a little bit. And here was the problem. Uh, I did teach in a track system. So we had advanced, we had regular, and we had what I taught, which was called developmental, which was, again, they were, they were multiple grade levels below where they were. So the advanced and regular students had blue books. They were different, but they were all blue. And mine were green. So when they were in the hall, people could see that they had a green book and therefore they were in the, these are their words, not mine. They were in the dummy class. Gotcha. So I was like, okay. I mean, for, that was, that was something they care about. Uh, that's something they're interested in because they're interested in peer affirmation. So I was like, all right, what can I do? So I put the, put the books on the shelf, went to my principal and said, okay, you know, you talked me into doing this. Now I need something from you. I want to teach with a newspaper. I don't want it once a week. I want it every day. And I don't want the local newspaper. I want USA Today, which at the time was the only color newspaper. So all of a sudden we're doing reading in English with a newspaper, which by itself is different. It's in color, which is different. And we were not only reading news stories, we were reading stories about the NBA game last night. And we were reading stories about Madonna, you know? And so they got to go out in the hall and talk about how they read the newspaper today and they had read about this. And it tapped into their interest in a way that I could never have anticipated. Um, and it was just a matter of sort of digging. And yes, I paid attention to real life connections, uh, but that was so much more than just a real life connection. It was figuring out what needs they were struggling with and what I needed to do about it. So then uh, going back to my foster son, um, this automotive class, which I have to tell you, I was struggling with too, okay? <laughs> it was not, you know, I, I don't know. The teacher did not make that interesting. I mean, it was a lot of memorization of stuff and so, uh, my foster son's wanting to drop the class and I'm trying to figure out a way that he should stay in class because he said, why do I ever need to learn this? I am memorizing stuff. Why do I ever need to learn this? And after a lot of tries that failed, what I finally came up with was that it was important to be in that class because even though he was having to read a lot of stuff, he was learning what to do if a car broke down. And if his girlfriend broke down and, and called him for help because she didn't know what else to do, he would be able to go help her. Finally, it tapped in because his interest was his girlfriend, not automotive. So I had to figure out how to link the two. Nice. <laughs> Lots of mistakes before I have successes. Okay, <laughs> I, got it. I got it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's it's funny how you th you think the one thing and it turns out it's something it there's some relation but it's not what you're thinking. <laughs> right. The uh, you know one of the um, the things that I think just really comes about there is that sometimes adults just have the ability to say you know it, your opinion doesn't matter and it it does matter when because they you know, they make choices based upon what matters to them. And they see you making choices about what matters to you. And, and they really would like to be listened to. And I think that's important for recognizing that in lots of the things that we do, because we, we tend not to give them that voice. So. Well, it's interesting when you say they pay attention to what we're interested in, because again, when I was a teacher, what I didn't realize was making a difference to my kids prior to using the newspaper Every morning on the way to school, I stopped and picked up a newspaper and I brought it to school and I would have it on my desk. And then like at lunch or if I got a chance during the day, I would, I would read the paper. And one day I forgot to do it and it freaked my kids out. That's they were like, you're not going to read a newspaper anymore. You always read a newspaper. That's and so I do think that at least a little bit of it was they liked doing something that I did. That's cool. That is very cool. That's that they're, wanted uh, that's 
That's awesome. Um, let's, hey, let's skip forward and let's talk a little about myth four. Expectations for your child are not important. So I just want to remind people that when the title says it that way, then that means that, uh, you know, it's the opposite. All right. So, so if myth four is expectations for your child are not important, what is important? Um, you know, your expectations are extremely important. And um, the reality is we all have expectations for our kids. Um, and sometimes those are positive and sometimes those are negative. So again, uh, my dad's expectation that I would compete with myself was really positive. Um, if he had had an expectation that I was always competing with everybody else, that likely would have been negative because you're never going to be better than everybody else. Okay. You can't do that all the time. So, uh, what was interesting, uh, was as I was doing my research, uh, I found a couple of these and I made up a couple of these based on characteristics I had seen. I came up with five, um, types of parent expectations. And I think if you're a teacher, you listen to them, you're really going to find them true for you too. So the first style of expectation we have is pressure cooker, which means we are always putting our kids under pressure. It is all the time. It is nonstop. You have to do your best. You have to keep going. You can't give up. You can't not try. And uh, I definitely see this with parents who anything less than the best isn't good enough. Uh, partly because I'm going to go down to the ball field and tell what my child is doing compared to what their kids are doing. So I'm always putting everybody under pressure and I'm probably always putting myself under pressure. At school, we see this where the entire 100% of school is about pressure for standardized testing. And you can prepare for standardized testing and not be a pressure cooker teacher uh, or a pressure cooker principal. So that's the first style. The second style is the royal family. And this is where I spoil my kid, school or, or a home, so much that they feel like they're entitled to everything. Um, and, and you're grinning, so I know that you see this. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying <laughs> not to. Yet, if you're listening, you probably know if you're doing this. And it is. My child's perfect. Uh, my, this student is perfect. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to spoil them with extra praise, extra rewards, extra attention. So it's the whole royal family style. Um, the third one, and, and you may have read about these uh, because these are very much out there uh, and have been for a while. The first one is helicopter parents. This came out a few years back, and it was really talked about with college students where parents hover over them like a helicopter. So, you know, uh, a college freshman makes a C and uh, the mom or dad immediately runs in to uh, meet with the professor and talk to them about how that could be fixed and figure out how to solve the problem. So it's very much a hovering and then solving problems as they come up. Now, uh, I have had kindergarten teachers tell me they see the same thing. So, you know, it's, it's not a college issue. So it's, it's all about the teacher says, you know, your child uh, is not reading as well as, as she needs to be. So let's talk about how we can work together on that. And the teacher has a couple of tips because it's really not a major issue. It's just let's read every day and let's do these things. And the parent goes, okay, to solve the problem, I need to go hire a tutor and we'll need to go for specialized tutoring. And, uh, we're going to make sure that uh, we go to the uh, library or the bookstore every day and buy books. And I'm going to talk about books at dinner every night. And so there's almost an overreaction and solving the problem for the kid. So they are not given the opportunity to solve it for themselves. Therefore, they don't learn to be independent problem solvers. Uh, the other part of that is lawnmower parents. And this one just came out in terms of somebody talking about it about a year and a half, eh, maybe two years ago. And lawnmower parents are an extension of helicopter parents. <laughs> if helicopter parents hover over and then solve a problem after it happens, what a lawnmower parent does is they go ahead of their kids, mow the lawn, clear the path so that they won't ever have to deal with a problem. So I go ahead and talk to a professor or a teacher and say, you know, 
she does this and this, and he does this and this. So I don't want that to be a problem. So if something starts to be a concern, you call me first. And so they never get the opportunity to solve a problem because I've taken care of it ahead of time. And that, um, you know, that happens. And I will have yes. to tell you that right now, uh, I am a lawnmower child. Uh, you're aware of this, your listeners are not. My mom, my dad just died at Thanksgiving and my mom has dementia. And I am very much a lawnmower child for her because with her dementia, she struggles if something goes wrong. Um, and so I have to make sure that I am taking care of things before. So, you know, it, everything is written down, which is a common strategy that they tell you to use with dementia. But if you have your own parents who have dementia, you know you do this. You're always being proactive to solve problems before they happen. And that's good in that situation. It's not good when we want our kids to learn how to grow up and be independent problem-solving adults. And so that's, that's those two, they pair together. And then the last one, which is the one you want to be, is a yoga parent who is balanced, there is flow, and you know everything may not be perfect. When you're standing up, you may shake a little bit, but you end up finding that balance and you're working with your kids. So those are the four types of expectations and you wanna to strive to be a yoga parent or a yoga teacher. I love that, I love it. And uh, I had not heard the term the yoga parent, which I think is cool because it's a nice settling after dealing with helicopter or lawnmower. And, uh, um, but good stuff because this is, you know, it, uh, expectations are important, but you know, we've got to, uh, um, you know, expectations are so important and uh, we got to make sure that we kind of keep ourselves in check, I guess, is my, where I'm going with that. Yes, so, yes. <laughs> um, very cool. So, you know, one of the other aspects of this book that I really like is that you have a section called Mixed Messages. Love the title of this section. <laughs> and can you please explain these? Yeah. Um, what those are, uh, and I really felt like I, I, I do when you talk about the books are easy and practical. I, I am always trying to think about what would help. And for me to say, you need to not send mixed messages to your kid in school or at home is one thing, but then what do those mixed messages look like or sound like? Because if they're mixed messages, we think they're okay. <laughs> Yet they're, they're not the best ones. So I gave uh, samples in all the chapters. So um, let's stick to the expectations piece. Okay. I want to give you, um, two samples of mixed messages. Uh, the first one is, I want you to do this on your own, but you know what? Just let me help a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you think you're telling them you're encouraging them to do it on right. their own, but you're really not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and you know what? We have so all done that. <laughs> oh yeah, not that I didn't build a website for my <laughs> somewhere back in seventh grade. Yes. So another one, and this one's a little trickier. When I, when I first read it, you're going to have to think. Okay, let me figure this one out. I'm sorry that happened to you when there was a problem. It happened to me one time too. Here's what I did. So see, you start off being very sympathetic, empathetic, so they can solve the problem. But you finish with, let me tell you what I did first. So I'm going to give you my solution. Nice. Before you come up with yours. And, and I'm okay sharing a solution. But what I want is I want the kid to try it first. Yeah. Good stuff. And then I can say, you know what? That sounds really good. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And I'm going to ask questions instead of just telling. And then maybe at the end, I'm going to say, you know what? I, I had to deal with this too. And, you know, this is what happened to me. And then hopefully what they'll say is, well, what did you do? And then it's appropriate to share it. But when you lead with it, like we just did, see, it's sort of like um, a bad hook. You know, I say a couple of things that sound like I'm going to help you. And then I hook you in with something that just tells you what to do. And that's what mixed messages are. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Because we do get into that, you know, as adults, you mean well. <laughs> But often we get into that whole mixed messages and I love those sections in your book. That's just, it's awesome because it reminds you of those things that you can get yourselves in these little uh, situations with uh, that, uh, like I said, you meant well. <laughs> so they, uh, 
Um, as always, you have e-resources that are available. In this case, you have a guidebook for clubs and a facilitator's handbook for parent-teacher book groups. Please talk about these just a little bit. Uh, well, they really were designed to allow um, teachers and parents to work together. Um, and so the guidebook for book clubs can be used if you're doing a neighborhood uh, book club. And, um, you know, it's, it's really easy. There are guiding questions. There's some activities uh, that let you get started. So uh, there are different things like that, but it is geared for a straight up book club, whether that's a neighborhood book club, a uh, teacher book club, those kinds of things. Now, what I also had teachers and parents who, who looked at things when I was writing, they said, what if in our school, we want to do a book club that includes teachers and parents? And that's a different, uh, that requires a different set of questions. It's not that you couldn't use the first ones, but this one um, relates more to what each can do and then the collaboration. So that's the second one, the handbook for parent-teacher uh, book groups. And, uh, you know, again, they're very practical. Um, questions, a couple of resources. Now, I will tell you this, and I'm throwing a curve at you because I have not told you this. Um, <laughs> and it reminds me I need to uh, fix a link on my website. These resources are not up on my Barbara Blackburn Online website. Okay? There's, there's tons of resources on there that everybody can access. But these specific resources are on motivatingyourkid.com motivatingyourkidnos.com. And so uh, those two resources happen to be there. Um, and I, I need to also get them up on mine, which is, I, it, that just hit me. And so I got to call my webmaster and say, I need you to put these up on the, on the main one too. But that one is, uh, is geared just toward that book. So motivatingyourkid.com, you can get both of those e-resources. Uh, you print them out, You've got copyright permission to use them. Feel free to do whatever you want to. Use them as is. Adapt them. Um, if you do something and it's really cool, email me through the website and let me know what you did. Excellent. And just as a note, I'm glad you straightened that out for me because I just thought that I was just couldn't find them. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I know they're here someplace. And I kept looking and looking and looking. And I'm like, well, what am I doing wrong? And uh, so thank you for <laughs> sharing that with me because I, I was I'm like, I know this is, I, I know how you do this. And it's like, so thank you. <laughs> yes, I was messing with your head, Steve. I you, purposely did it. Thank you. I appreciate that. With you. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is I know now that uh, I uh, was never going to find them where I was looking. So <laughs> <laughs> you are right. So those resources are at motivatingyourkid.com. No S. Yes. Excellent. So one more myth before we go. Could you talk about myth seven? Competition, grading, and homework are no big deal. Okay. All of those are big deals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they are all big deals. Uh, competition, I think we've already talked about a little bit uh, in terms of you really want to encourage competing with yourself versus competing with others. Uh, again, the issue is it can get out of hand very, very quickly. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, people go, yeah, but like at the upcoming Olympics, if we have them, um, you know, um, people are going to be competing with other people. Yeah, but if you really sort of dig into interviews with these athletes, they'll tell you they're competing with themselves, that they're, they're doing their best, that they are beating their own time by a tenth of a second. So, yes. Um, they like the gold medals. I'm never going to say they don't, but there's also this part of competing with yourself and you really want to make sure that happens because if you don't, it can, uh, can cause all kinds of problems, including just the whole self-esteem of, well, if I don't win, if I don't score the most points, then I'm a loser. I'm a, I'm a failure. And, and that's not true. I mean, I am, um, Okay, listeners, you may hate me for this, but I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. Um, and, uh, you know, they do very well uh, the majority of the time, but they also lose. And, you know, when I've read the books about Coach K and read his interviews, he certainly doesn't encourage losing. 
But what he does do when they lose is he encourages learning from the loss. And, you know, how are you doing your best? That it's not about the other team. Um, and, you know, I was trying to think, I don't believe I've ever heard him when his team loses. I've never heard him blame the other team. It's always about what did we not do well? Uh, you know, what do we need to improve? And he did that when he was coaching the Olympics team. Um, and so that's the piece about competition we got to be real careful about. So it can be okay, but make sure your focus is in the right place. Now, the uh, grading is also huge because grades are very important. Everybody knows it, uh, particularly if you are a high school teacher or a parent of a high schooler. You're going, GPA is important for getting into college. GPA is important for getting scholarships. So grades become this overriding factor. And grades are important, but again, just like competition, they're not the most important. Um, and I could talk about, you know, why you don't want to overemphasize them and all that. But what I want to do is give you uh, six quick things to do. If you're a parent and your kid gets a bad grade, and if you're a teacher, you can absolutely take these and tweak them a little bit. So, you know, my, my stepson comes home with a bad grade. Here's what I want to do. I want to not panic. <laughs> <laughs> and I will tell you, I have a friend where if her kids came home with anything less than an A, she went into a fit. And her kids, 10 years later, uh, are responding in very different ways, both of which are negative. Uh, so you want to not panic. You know, just stay neutral. Uh, take your time to respond. You know, okay, uh, it looks like, you know, you want to talk about this, and that's great. Why don't we uh, go out and throw the ball first? Why don't we grab a snack first? Why don't we watch television first? So stop and don't just respond immediately. Give yourself some time to think. Uh, then ask questions, and, and this is a theme with me, is asking is always better than telling. So ask a lot of questions. Then talk to the teacher or teachers talk to the parent. So you want to get your information. Then what I recommend is with the kid, you sit down and together you write a goal. Okay, and the goal is not just, I'm gonna make an A instead of a B. The goal is, okay, let's think about what you did. What can you do to do better? And that might be a higher B, you know? I mean, it might not be an A or it might be a D instead of an F. But okay, so my goal is, that I want to um, show my notes to my teacher when I walk out the door to make sure I've gotten all the information. You, you want to be, be careful with what that is. I mean, honestly, when I was in college, uh, one of the things that my dad recommended, I had this history class. This history professor was not a nice person. Okay, right. he just wasn't. And you had to buy a book. It took him four times. He was the only one who taught those four required classes. Um, you bought a book, nothing from the test came from the book. Everything from the test came from his lecture. And he lectured at about 100 miles an hour. Jeez. And I was able to keep up with him, but I, it was scribble. I mean, it really was because you pretty much had to script his stuff out. And what my dad said was, you know, when I was in school, uh, one of the things I did was recopy my notes. And it just sort of helped me to sort of cement it in my mind. You know what? I did that, made straight A's through all four courses. But it was actually the process of handwriting, okay? You know, there's all this, type it on the computer. Uh, the handwriting is what worked. As I handwrote each of those words over again while it was fresh in my mind, I knew what it was, and uh, then it helped me study better later. So that would be the kind of goal. You want something specific. And then what you want to finish is, as you go along, encourage and support. Um, and if they make the same grade again next time, my first question, uh, this is true of my niece and nephew. My first question for them, whenever they called about their report cards was not what the grade was, but did you do your best? Okay. Uh, tell me what you made. Now, did you do your best in all of those classes? Well, I didn't really do my best here. Okay. Then, then, you know, what do you want to do better in that class? And it was never fussing at them for a C even if it wasn't their best, it was that focus, again, the competition piece. What did you do? Did you do your best? How are you going to do better? And so that's really, 
you know, what you, what you want to do. And then finally the homework piece and oh my gosh, isn't homework one of those issues. Um, I'm going to talk about teachers. I'm going to talk about parents uh, with teachers. I have to tell you, do not give homework every night unless you just absolutely have to. It really is not a requirement to live in this world. Uh, it just isn't. And I learned that giving it every night just devalued it. The kids were just like, oh, this is rote work. I just need to finish it. I don't need to learn. I just need to finish it. And uh, so I didn't give it every night. And particularly, I'm going to go back to, because I taught elementary and, the, and then I taught this junior high school with my junior high kids, particularly my eighth graders, uh, they weren't doing their homework. So I was like, okay, so what are they interested in and how am I going to tie that to solving my problem? So uh, I cut them a deal. I said, okay, we really need to do homework and I need you to do it. But what I'm going to do to work with you is I'm only going to give you homework three nights a week. And so what you're going to do is figure out what two nights you don't want homework. And then I'll give you homework the other three nights and you're agreeing to do it. Okay. Now they ended up doing their homework and here's what they wanted. It was really simple. I just couldn't believe I didn't think about it. They didn't want homework on Fridays because they didn't want homework over the weekends. And a lot of teachers do that anyway. But here was the other one that I learned from. They didn't want homework on Thursday nights because Thursday nights were the JV football games and basketball games. And they wanted to be able to go to a game and not have to do homework. And you know what? That was a simple trade-off. And so, you know, I lessened the amount. I focused on quality, not quantity. Uh, I did make sure that what I was giving them was, was quality. It wasn't just, you know, honestly, if you do 20 problems, uh, and then you do a hundred. If you do a hundred and you don't do them right, you're just learning how to do them wrong. You know, nice. so focus on your quality there. Now for parents, um, I think what you want to do is set up that environment and set some parameters that they can live within. So I also think it's important to sit down and, and build a set of guidelines or rules, if you want to call them rules, uh, with them. So they're standard stuff. They need a basic place to do their homework. And you may be going, oh, well, I want them to do it uh, in their room. And these days it matters if you've got a laptop or a desktop, but you may want them to do it in their room. I'm going to tell you, my dad let me come and do just for 30 minutes. I could come down and sit at his desk and do my homework. Big, 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 big deal. Okay. Nice, nice. So find a place, um, set a time. And uh, you'll want to probably direct that a little bit more, but you want some input. So um, I have parents where they come in the door, they sit down and they do their homework uh, before they do anything else. We did that with my stepson. A um, little bit of a challenge we had was he would rush through it so he could go do other things. Uh, so we had, to, we had to sort of work with that a little bit. Um, but you may want to do it then. You may want to give them an hour to decompress. I, I actually think that's a really good idea because they've worked in school all day. Coming home and keeping working is a little bit tough. So you may want to give them some time um, and then they do their homework. Some people, they do it after supper. I, I tended to struggle with that a little bit more because I was really tired. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think you just have to make it work, but you want a specified place you want a specified time. You want to make sure they have the right tools. So you don't want an excuse of, I don't have a computer. Uh, I don't have a pencil or a pen, you know. Uh, oh, my high school geometry teacher, if you didn't have a protractor with you all the time, it was a big deal. So I would forget sometimes and leave it in my locker. Well, dad and mom bought another one to have at home, you know, a little cheap plastic one. It wasn't a big deal, but it worked. Uh, so you want to have the right tools. So the right space, the right time, the right tools, and then you want to encourage and support. Never do it for them. Ask a lot of questions so that they can be successful and then encourage what they're doing that is working. And so that's what you want to do with homework. So three myths and one with that one, Steve. Awesome. That's just, <laughs> that's just such a powerful chapter. And I appreciate you talking about it because just all of that. And, and first you took me down so many different weird memory lanes because <laughs> you know, I, I'm the one in, uh, in school um, who I would rush through it. All right. Because yeah, I've, I got to get it done because during I was in band and I wanted to do band. And 
So I'm doing band and I did good in school. Don't get me wrong, but I wonder how much better I could have done <laughs> if I spent a little bit more time on it. And there's a couple subjects that come to mind. There's some that I spent all my time and effort on because I really like those teachers or I really like the class or something like this. But I was somebody who, you know, because generally, like, especially during marching season, you had to go straight to band. You didn't have uh, the chance right after school. And so that was my decompression time. But then when I got home, I had to do it. And yeah, I didn't want to do that. And so, but I had a place to do it, the expectation to do it. So I'd sit down and a lot of times I just rushed through it. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I know that feeling because that, that kind of followed me throughout college as well. And, uh, you know, when you get someone who meets with you and says, now let's talk about this. And because uh, um, here's where you're having this mistake and I think you're rushing through it. And it's like, how did you know that? And, you know, it was, uh, that's a very real discussion there. So I, I think it, that's such an important chapter. And I, I got to tell you that, that I'm glad you included it because it really is. So good stuff there. Well, yeah. Um, before we go, if, if someone wanted to uh, connect further with you, where would you send them? Um, I, you got a couple of ways. Uh, my website really is the best way for all of my work, uh, and that is barbarablackburnonline.com. Uh, do not go to barbarablackburn.com. Apparently, that is somebody who writes like international thrillers, <laughs> and so that is not me. Uh, so it's barbarablackburnonline.com. Uh, over a hundred free resources. So all kinds of things, articles, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, by the end of the week, I will have my webmaster link over to this and put up these resources because they're not on that site, but it is the most comprehensive place to get information about me. Uh, second, these resources and material about this book in particular are at motivatingyourkid.com. Uh, at both websites, you can get in touch with me. There's a contact me and it sends me a message directly. Um, also, um, on the BarbaraBlackburnOnline.com and I'm looking real quickly to say yes, on the MotivatingYourKid.com, it actually gives you a Google phone number and uh, people are always surprised when I answer the phone. But uh, as long as I'm not on a podcast and uh, not doing a video presentation or not doing a stand-up presentation with a, with a school or a district, then I answer the phone. Um, so you can get in touch with me those ways. Uh, if you do have questions, I am happy to answer them. Uh, I, you know, I'm always uh, just love to hear from people who read my books uh, or people who have questions. So uh, please feel free to get in touch with me. Uh, Steve, as always, I just appreciate, you know, uh, you having me on uh, because I do uh, workshops all the time and somebody will say, oh, I listen to you. Cool. Um, so people listen to your stuff. And, <laughs> and then when I'm in, I find out about it. And that's just one of the coolest things ever. Very cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's awesome to hear. The uh, And I got to, I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes. And so, uh, um, so people can find them. And uh, I got, uh, and, and by the way, I got, I'm stumbling again, because I'm also, you just, you started me thinking about that, uh, that one college professor that I had that, uh, you know, basically gave all these homework problems. And by the time you got to number three, you couldn't do number three, you know, number one and two were easy. Number three was bad. And there's still like 25, 50 more to go. And you're like, what the heck? I can't get past number three. And and he never had office hours. So it was like, okay, so you depended on people that you were friends with. And if you had good friends, then, you know, you might get the answers. If you had the friends that didn't know either, <laughs> it's like, what the heck? <laughs> so, yes, totally true. So one last question. If you had yes. a chance to talk with an audience of educators about your book, Money for Good Grades and Other Myths About Motivating Kids, Strategies for Parents and Teachers, what is the one thing that you would want them to leave thinking about? You know, this one's for educators and if I was doing a group of parents, okay? That'll work. Uh, because we didn't talk about this chapter. The most important thing about motivation is your relationship with your kid. Because everything else comes out of relationship. And if you don't have a good relationship, then most of the other stuff isn't going to matter. And that's tough. Uh, because we work really hard and sometimes it doesn't work. And I will say that's the last chapter in the book is the myth is I did everything right. And my kid is motivated. No, sometimes you do everything right. And your kid is not motivated. Right. And so honestly, if you're struggling, go read that chapter first. 
Nice. Very nice. Excellent. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for talking with us today. I mean, your book, Money for Good Grades and Other Myths About Motivating Kids, Strategies for Parents and Teachers is an amazing tool that all parents and teachers and principals should read. I thank you for joining us today and wishing the best in all you do. Thank you very much. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.